you would continue with your head bowed for just another moment. Heavenly Father, as we make this transition now to open up your scriptures and to speak, Lord, about your word, I submit, I surrender to the authority therein contained. Father, we are entirely and totally dependent on the Holy Spirit's work and the transmission and the hearing of this word from these pages to our heart. I pray that you would use these moments together, Father, that you would remind us as we've just seen, Lord, the appropriate affections that are worthy of the great gift of fellowship and communion through Jesus Christ, purchasing blood, and through the reading of your holy scriptures, the revelation of yourself to us, fallen and finite creatures, you have shown and revealed yourself. O oh Lord, let these thoughts, let our hearts, Lord Jesus, be inspired by the truth, Father, we have before us today, and all that you might be honored and glorified, and that your word might be continually proclaimed in greater measure through the testimony of your church, repenting to its standards and declaring its truths in the rest of our calling in life live beyond these walls. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So at this point, as Aaron indicated, as our practice, I would invite you to stand and turn with me to Matthew chapter 15. As you're turning to Matthew 15, we will read verses 10 through 20 together, this second section where Jesus turns from the Pharisees to the crowd and provides for them understanding in their hearing about the truths involved with this transaction and exchange with the authorities of this man-centered religious system and the authority of the Lord of glory. So follow me as I read in Matthew 15, 10 through 20. And he, Jesus, called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He, Jesus, answered, Every plant that, is, that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Glory to the Lord for providing us this gracious opportunity and for myself as I trust with you too that video that Aaron just played of Christians in another persecuted oppressive environment not so privileged as us to have been reading our Bibles from the moment of our conversion. I do hope that that sets the tone and 
add some perspective to this morning's message about the inestimable value that lays before us today, and that we may not squander the familiarity we have with the Scriptures, but instead that we might make with the time and the resources we have available to us a deep and enduring investment in the kingdom of God for His glory and His name's sake. My prayer is that this sermon this morning would be a small installment by the Spirit's power in that regard. And so in this section, as we have just read, Jesus is turning to the crowds who are privileged in part, as opposed to the Pharisees, to have ears to hear. And He calls their attention to truth. And He says, hear and understand in verse 10. I've titled this sermon, Gnats and Camels. The title comes from chapter 23 of this same gospel in Matthew's Gospel 24, where the woes are pronounced against this same group, the Pharisees, for their hardened heart against the truth and word of God and for their substitution of the authority of Christ for the authority of their traditions, their elders, and their own self-aggrandizing position. In the section where Jesus pronounced seven times judgment upon this kind of hardened attitude, he says among his thoughts in verse 25 of that chapter 23, these you ought to have done, meaning the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat, And swallowing a camel. Straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Being so picky so as to pay attention to the smallest detail so you may not transgress your man prescribed rules and order. But in so doing, forgetting the meaning of the law. And and not recognizing the identity of Christ. I'm told by the commentaries that those two animals, a gnat and a camel, represent the smallest unclean animal and the largest unclean animal. And it's a picture of the blind spot of the Pharisees. They had such a hardened heart and such glazed eyes, spiritually speaking, that they were swallowing camels and straining at gnats. They were failing to see the big picture the glorious themes, the proclaimed truths, the identity of Christ. They could not revel in His miracles. They could not appreciate His authority. They could not connect the dots from the Old Covenant to the New as He proclaimed with authority that it was all fulfilled in Him. I pray that this would never be said of us. In anticipation, however, of our tendency in our modern ears to distinguish ourselves self-righteously and also ironically from the first century Pharisees, let us pray to have ears to hear. Ears to hear are not a given for every human being. This is clear from the context of this gospel. In Matthew 13, we are told that there is a select group by God's favor chosen alone who have and are granted as a gift ears to hear. Everyone in his prideful arrogance and self-sufficiency thinks he can hear just fine. Any reasonable man walking by on the street today in our culture would be offended if you told him that he is doing things 
that in one respect and in one perspective are quite literally insane. He is, a stra- he is straining out a gnat. He is worried about his livelihood, his job, prom- uh, promotion, advancement, his day-to-day life. Yet, in the words of J.C. Ryle, he is so mad that he is living unprepared to die. And in so doing, in his obliviousness to the truth of the gospel that his life will be required of him, that there is a judge in glory to whom he must answer for every thought and every deed, the average American, the average human being, this globe over, is guilty of the type of framework and perspective that the Pharisees exhibited in this section of Scripture. They are oblivious and myopic and blind to the most important things. Surely there is none so mad as those who are content to live unprepared to die. But again... That is just a commentary on the unbeliever. Let us, as confessing believers, for as many as are in this room today, be careful lest we self-righteously distinguish ourselves too far, again, from the first-generation Pharisee. Are we, do we tend to be guilty of what the Pharisees were guilty of? Well, consider the difference in the audience right here in this text. Two types of people are listening One is the offended Pharisee, and the second is the perplexed disciple. The Pharisee, or the disciples themselves, say to Christ in verse 12, Do you not know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Later, Peter, though he realizes the Pharisees were angry at Christ for what he said, yet remains confused, and as a spokesman for as many who has felt likewise, says in verse 15, But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And Jesus meets this confession with the clear statement, are you still without understanding? The implication is yes. Two types of people were listening to Jesus here, disciples and Pharisees, but they both easily missed the weight of the truth that was there to behold. Matthew Henry insightfully gives us this quote to describe this condition, these circumstances. He says, the Pharisees were offended but kept it to themselves. Hating to be reformed, they hated to be informed. The Pharisee, the heart of the Pharisee is well stated in that quote, hating to be reformed, not wanting to change, judging themselves just fine, thank you. They hate to be informed. They are loath to have their attention brought by the authority of God's law and scripture to the weight and the reality of their own sin. Hating to be reformed, they hate to be informed. But the disciples, though offended, sought for satisfaction, imputing the offense not to the doctrine delivered, but the shallowness of their own capacity. In other words, there are two types of misunderstanding. One is, I refuse to understand because, by my standards, I'm just fine, thank you. I don't need you to tell me where I'm wrong I'm as good as you, I'm as good as any man, and I prefer not to hear any direct message preaching uh, offensively to sin in my life. And the other response is confusion. And there's a certain offense, as Matthew Henry puts it, but it's just simply a misunderstanding. Lord, could you make it a little clearer? So in other words, though they don't understand exactly what Jesus is saying, They don't blame him or his message for it, but the shallowness of their own capacity. 
And that is a humble position for us to take as believers opening the Word of God. We might say at any given point in Scripture, I'm not sure how this speaks to me. But Lord, I know that's not a problem with Your Word. Lord, I must confess, I'm not sure I want to hear this directive, this imperative. But I must confess, that is because of my sin. It's not because You're not authoritative. It's not because Your Word is not clear. It's because my eyes are closed. My mind is confused, and I am slow to learn and have little capacity to understand the greatness and the incomprehensibility of an almighty, worthy, holy, exalted God, unless He condescends, He stoops low to me to whisper by His Spirit in my ear so that I can hear and understand. Consider, for instance, this sample application This morning, are we guilty, like the Pharisees, of judging anything a better use of time, money, and effort, and in so doing, break the commandment of God and make void the word of God? After all, you remember the issue at hand in verse 3. He answered them, Christ answered the Pharisees, Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? At the close of last week's message, I phrase the application point this way, for the sake of blank, for the sake of this, hypothetical thing, false value, idea, preconceived notion, have we, have you, made void the Word of God? I would encourage and exhort us to continually ask that question so that we don't fall into the trap that the Pharisees were in, hating (coughs) to be reformed. We do not want to hear the corrective voice of Scripture. We do not want to be informed. Let us ask ourselves, are we guilty of judging anything? And in the use of our time, money, and effort towards that end, are we in danger of or blatantly breaking the commandment of God or making void the Word of God? Just one example, and this is borne out statistically these days, of one possible application of this comes to my mind. The providence of God revealed in history is sometimes illustrative of our sin. And it's come to my attention lately that the average family in America that still happens to be together, statistically speaking, is likely to have a house that is twice the square footage of a century and a half ago or thereabouts, 100 plus years. We are likely to have a house twice the square footage, half or less the number of children, and seven times the debt. Seven times the debt. Why? Do we indulge such deplorable conditions? The Word of God says quite clearly that debt is not something that God finds favorable or is pleased with. Although there are some exceptions and limited use of debt in Scripture, certainly seven times today what was the norm a hundred years ago does not signify a trend toward repentance, but certainly toward apostasy. And this among the families that happen to be together. Which brings up another example, divorce. At the early stages of this country's founding, I'm told by the best estimates of demographers looking back in history that divorce was almost never named among us as a culture. One percent or so broken homes. One percent or so. Where are we today judged on the standard of the Word of God when it is a small miracle when a family holds together And a marriage lasts decades, 30, 40 years. 
I know when I hear those stories and testimonies of faithfulness to the Lord's commands, to the Word of God, and His dictates, I rejoice these days. What's sad is that they're so rare. And so for what reason do you suppose do we break the Word of God so flippantly, take it so casually in these days? Are we guilty of anything that the Pharisees were the time when this is written? So for the sake of our tradition, we have made void the Word of God? Or have we, do we break the commandment of God for the sake of our tradition, the things that God commanded, such as the fifth commandment, verse 4, reiterated by Christ's own words in Matthew 15, honor your father and mother. Whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. And here they had found some reason to spin and convolute the word of God to justify their own sin. And they said, but you say, if anyone tells his father or mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. We've done the same thing I submit to you in regard to faithfulness, fidelity, and marriage. For the sake of any number of things, I want to break this thing off or continue in a life of luxury, self-indulgement, uh, or whatever else we substitute in our personal traditions for the clear, emphatic word of God. Yes, indeed, we are guilty of thinking like the Pharisees. And so this section carries so much weight for us. And to help us understand it a little more fully in context, let me give you a heading. Weighing the contextualized significance of Christ versus Pharisees in Matthew 15. And I hope this adds a little weight to Jesus' words as we consider the context that surrounds them. What is the contextualized significance of this interaction to help us realize to greater degree the power of this exchange and the truth that is clarified in that regard? First of all, positive fulfillment. And this is a reference back again to Isaiah 29. So while you're turning there, I'll give you briefly a few other points that we'll cover this morning. Positive fulfillment of Isaiah 29, 14 through 21. Christ is fulfilling the prophecies of old. Secondly, preempting imposter authorities. Christ is preempting the false authority claims of the Pharisees in this section. Thirdly, there's perception and parable illustrated. Things that Jesus had declared and illustrated by parable are here given by example. And then number four, properties and nature of defilement. Jesus speaks directly as to the nature of sin. So first of all, positive fulfillment of Isaiah 29. As we continue to read in Matthew 15, 10, when there's this shift, the shift, the Pharisees leave and the people are called to Christ, he says, called the people to them and said to them, hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard the saying? He answered, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone, they are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Prior to these words, Christ had quoted directly from Isaiah 29, saying in verses 8 and 9, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So now as we turn back to Isaiah 29, we see what Isaiah's words 
in this section, centuries earlier, had said what they were followed by. And we read in 13 and 14 and the following verses, And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth, and honor me with their lips, while their heart are far, hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, and wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, Who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me? Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? It is not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book. And out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exalt in the Holy One of Israel. For the ruthless shall come to nothing, and the scoffers cease. And all who watch to do evil shall be cut off. Who by a word make a man out of an offender, and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate, and with an empty plea turn aside him who is in the right. I trust if you are pay, paying fairly close attention, you are able to track almost line for line, certainly idea for idea, the parallels of Isaiah's time and prophecy to what Jesus proceeds to do here. Last week we highlighted some of the patterns that we see, continuity and the message that, I, that Israel heard through the mouth of the prophet Isaiah and the message that Israel heard through the mouth of the prophet Christ, Jesus, during this time. But this morning it strikes me that not just a pattern, but a specific fulfillment of these very words is echoing in the ears of all who had ears to hear and all who had eyes to see. First of all, one note to highlight that indicates that this is true is in Isaiah twenty-nine eighteen, and there's a prophetic denotation there. We find this phrase, in that day, in that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book. In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book. What is this prophetic note here, this time signature, if you will, this denotation that marks a significant pattern throughout prophecies of the Old Covenant and into the New, in that day? Well, it's a reference and context to the day of the Lord. What is the day of the Lord? Well, the day of the Lord is a day upon God's sovereign choosing where He predestines the moment of reckoning and He will intervene at that time and it will be a covenant ultimatum, as we mentioned last week. There would be a day of the Lord for Jerusalem if she would deny her Messiah. Jesus issues this covenant ultimatum at the end of Matthew 23 and into Matthew 24. There was a day of the Lord at the time when Isaiah was writing where if the people did not repent, they would be led by Babylon into exile. There was a day of the Lord, a covenant ultimatum, and this is the best 
and most amazing moment in history, biblically speaking, as far as our redemption is concerned, of all. And that was the moment of Christ and His incarnation. And when Christ would come, the book, as it were, would arrive. The Word of God would be born of a virgin. And at this time, the deaf would hear the words of a book. And out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind would see. And so at this, in that day, in that coming of the Lord, in that day of the Lord, that Jesus represented the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy was coming to fruition in the ears of those who were humble and meek. It was seen by the eyes of those who were enlightened by the Spirit's power to recognize that this was a significant moment. I had better hinge and hang on every word. For the ungodly, the coming of the Lord and covenant ultimatum would mean final and swift, decisive, dramatic judgment. And this was true for the Pharisees and those like-minded. As seven woes are proclaimed on them in Matthew 23. Woe to you hypocrites and so on who wash the outside of the dish but don't pay attention to what really counts. Woe to you who have nice looking tombs but inside are dead man's bones and so on. But the glorious hope of this coming of the Lord, the day of Christ's arrival on this earth was that those, those who had ears to hear would repent and believe, and in Jesus Christ, they would have salvation. Praise the Lord. This, Christ's preaching and Christ's declaration, both in judgment over sin and also drawing people's attention to the truths of Scripture, instructing them in the covenants of God fulfilled in Himself, was a positive fulfillment of Isaiah 29. We see that as the prophetic denotation draws our attention to it. Also, we see that there is an authority showdown prophesied in Isaiah 29. You see that there are two parties here, those that have deceived the people in their influence and the people who are deceived. The Lord said in verse 13, Isaiah 29, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. In other words, they have substituted the fear of the Lord for a commandment taught by men, for an errant word, for the influence of the naysayers, the false prophets, and the gods, God deniers. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people and wonder upon wonder. And the context here indicates that this wonder upon wonder will be a two-part. It will be an opening of the blind eyes to see, but also a swift Imminent judgment on those who have been leading the people astray. We find this in the same verse, 14, second half. And the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. And I don't know who better described by this verse than the Pharisees and what they represented at the time of Christ's preaching. Isaiah had said of them prophetically in verse 15, All you who hide from the Lord your counsel whose deeds are in the dark and who say who sees us, who knows us, you turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay and the thing made say of its maker, he did not make me or the thing formed of him uh, who formed it, he has no understanding. You see here that line for line just about these words of Isaiah are being fulfilled in Jesus' ministry. Those who had led the people astray 
with false claims to truth and authority, the Pharisees would be judged and be shown to be false. Also, we find the humble, those who need to be brought to the attention of God's word. The disciples, we, we know them as in Matthew, Matthew's gospel, but here they're referred to as the humble and the meek. For instance, in verse 19, the meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exalt in the Holy One of Israel. And so it goes. Also, Jesus had said that like false plantings, though the, the Pharisees would be rooted up. Meanwhile, the seeds that he had referred to in a prior parable would produce fruit, just like Isaiah had prophesied in verse 17, until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest. There is unquestionably here Jesus, conscious of the testimony and the prophecy of old, was fulfilling in his work, in his word and ministry, the word of God as the word of God, Now, at this time, and this was significant, you can see the positive fulfillment of Isaiah 29, that prophetic denotation that I marked, that I referenced for you in the day of the Lord, and also the context of this authority showdown, and in the character and events that are so similar. Secondly, we're weighing the contextualized significance of Christ versus Pharisees in Matthew 15. Having considered the positive fulfillment of Isaiah 29, the passage that Jesus had just referenced, let's now consider Christ's own preempting of the imposter authorities. Note with particular care that in the context here, there was a shift of authority taking place. People were following Christ and renouncing the Pharisees. The people were not seeking the Pharisees anymore for their blessing and commendation of what Jesus said. But in fact, quite the opposite would now prove to be the case. Christ would be sought as the authority for everything. Should I listen to these guys or should I not? And so we see the unseating of the Pharisees as the primary influence in this regard in the culture of Israel, at least among those who are true disciples and followed Christ. This becomes even more clear as the gospel unfolds. Turn with me to briefly to Matthew 23. At this point, this is the context of Christ's woes pronounced on the Pharisees, but it's prefaced by a note of authority where Jesus Christ unequivocally sets himself up as the standard for truth and his word alone is absolute. And by it, he judges and teaches his disciples and the humble hearers to judge the Pharisees and everyone and anyone else says in 23.1, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to the disciples, The scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, And this was their impressive apparel that was intended to communicate a holiness, a righteousness, a piety. Christ is making the point that it's superficial. It's on the surface. It's not represented in substance in the heart. Verse 6, he continues. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. 
Notice these important instructions, verse 8 and 9. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. You have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And may we pay heed to humble ourselves before our one instructor, Christ. May we proclaim Christ alone. Christ alone in authority. Christ alone in influence. Christ alone in our message. Christ alone in our claim to righteousness. Christ alone, His word, His finished work. No pharisaical notion of Christ and something of our merit. No pharisaical notion of someone who improves upon or presumes to judge Christ or His Word. Christ and Christ alone. Christ is preempting the false authority claims in this section of Moses' seat. Moses was a legitimate prophet of God. Moses appeared with Jesus Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. Moses was given the holy word and law of God written by the finger of God himself on Sinai to grant to the people. And he did so as a frail human being, yet an anointed prophet. Others continued in Moses' stead until the perfect Moses, if you will, comes. Jesus Christ, who in his sinless life and in his perfect word as the word of God, delivers the final word that unseats every imposter authority. Now, in the future, in the past, only Christ and Christ alone holds claim ultimately to Moses' seat. And therefore, only in him do we find the last word. We might ask ourselves the question, The Pharisees, motivated by a sort of super piety, were even adding to the law. Well, isn't that a good thing to some regard? Isn't it kind of laudable that they would make up extra rules so that you could catch that gnat? Granted, it should be along with the camel. Well, the problem here is obvious when you consider in order to make a law, you have to presume law-making authority. And there is only one who holds that claim. And every other, every other law-making authority is subordinate to Christ. When those who, in this day and age or then, whether they be governments in church, state, or individual, or otherwise, when they presume to add to the law of God, and in so doing show themselves as sitting in the seat that God alone occupies, They stand worthy and will be judged unless they repent. They're setting themselves in the place of God as the Pharisees did. They, for any number of motive reasons, are seeking to justify themselves by their own standards of arbitrary piety. Arbitrary because it is not rooted and grounded in the Word of God, but their own Word. Thus, they oppose and are at odds with Christ The Pharisees, because of their made-up rules, adding to the Word of God and presuming to be as authoritative as God, to add to His Word, they had, at every turn, opposed Christ up until His point, and they would be among those who would condemn Him, 
with false accusations and send him to the cross. Showing us that the best intentions are never justified to make up our own rules or stand on our own authority because in so doing we will end up inevitably and always opposing the word of Christ. Christ is preempting these imposter authorities. We see this also in Mark's 7.19 reference, Mark 7.19, which adds to the weight, again, the contextual significance of Christ's words in this exchange. Mark takes, in this gospel, takes the time to note that just as the Pharisees and their self-appointed law-making authority are condemned justly by God, conversely, Christ himself is affirmed when he calls them on the carpet and indeed interprets the law of God itself. Mark 17, 18, Jesus said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled. And note this parenthetical statement. Thus he, Christ, declared all foods clean. Thus he declared all foods clean. Jesus Christ, who alone has the authority to change in any way the law of God, changed it in only this sense. The ceremonial law of the Old Testament was fulfilled in him. It was rendered obsolete in that its goal had been met in Christ and in his word and in his person. Now all who are in Christ, past Christ's declaration, find their identity not through feasts and not through keeping the dietary laws, but they find their identity in him. And thus this note in Mark's gospel reminds us that this authority is a law-making authority that the Pharisees and us are encountering in the pages of Scripture. This is Jesus Christ, the Word of God. And He and He alone has the authority to issue decrees like this, and He will preempt and judge every imposter authority, and He reminds the standard by which all other claims to ethics, to morality, to religion, to holiness, to righteousness, to salvation must be measured. Thirdly, weighing the contextualized significance of Christ versus Pharisees in Matthew 15. We've considered this fulfillment of prophecies of old in Isaiah 29. We've considered this clash and then the preempting of the imposter authorities that Christ represented. But thirdly, let's consider the context of this event related to perception, eyes to see, ears to hear, as Christ has already declared, as well as parable. First of all, hearing and understanding are in view in Matthew 15. He called the people to him again in verse 10 and said to them, Hear and understand. Now these words are significant. There is a gift and a sovereign grace implied here, especially as we remember what Christ has already declared in Matthew 13. Turn back just a couple of pages And read with me Matthew 13, 10 and following. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? He answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given. And he will have an abundance. 
From the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy, again from Isaiah, is fulfilled, saying, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. These people's hearts have grown dull. Their eyes can barely hear. Their ears can barely hear. Their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Verse 16, though the hopeful promise to those who are listening in on this uh, section of the discourse, but blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. By way of illustration, Call your attention to the video that we opened this message with. There's something of the idea of the kind of privilege that having eyes to see and ears to hear is indeed, in in fact, for the human heart on whom the Holy Spirit has tilled to receive the Word of God to produce fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold. You saw in the smiles in the hushed silence of reverence, in the overflowing tears, and even in the kissing of the pages of God's Word among those people who valued the Scriptures, yet did not have them at their disposal, at their fingertips for years, you saw something closer to appropriate affections for the great grace of hearing and understanding the Word of God. If you this morning, and if I this morning, have been counted among those privileged few, I pray that the Lord might stir us to worship. When Jesus calls in Matthew 15 to the crowds, the Pharisees had gone away offended, stomping off, only hardened in their resolve to kill the Christ. Yet those who are standing maybe with eyes wide, not knowing, scared, what's going on? After those Pharisees stomped off to plot his death, no doubt, those who were on the outskirts, as I imagined, were beckoned in by the arms of Christ. Come here, come here. He called the people to him and he said to them, hear and understand. And if this people had heard what he had said previously, that it had not been given to everyone, but only to a select few, to hear and to understand, they would have known what a grace that would have been. They could have just as easily, but by the grace of God, been a hardened, hard-hearted, obstinate, rebellious Pharisee who said, I will not listen to you, Christ. I reject your word. But in hearing and understanding, even as Christ graciously reveals the truth, these who had been blind now see. These who had been deaf, now hear. These who had been lost were found. And these, a remnant among them, who had been lost in the transgressions of their sins, would find redemption and hope and salvation of the shed blood of the man who spoke into their ears at this very moment. Perception and parable are illustrated in this interaction we see additionally that when Christ had said, 
Go ahead and let the weeds be planted. Let the weeds grow with the wheat. In 1324, he put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to, that, to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? He said, No. Listen, gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At harvest time, I will tell the reapers, go, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned and gather the wheat into my barn. What is the fate of those tares, those weeds that are gathered in bundles to be burned? The parables go on to reveal in verse 41, the Son of Man will send His angels, speaking of the reaping age, they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Again he says, He who has ears, let him hear. And again, for those who had ears to hear, they were seeing an illustration of this very parable play out before them as the Pharisees who took offense at Christ received an indictment from Christ And in verse 13, he says of them, he answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. And here he's speaking to the weeds represented by the Pharisees' precondition to the gospel, to be resistant to it. The Pharisees' perception that was hardened to the truth. The Pharisees that did not want to be shown their sin did not want to be shown the excellence and the superiority, the supremacy and the sufficiency, the ruling and reigning Christ. They would be plucked up, gathered, and burned. But for those who had ears to hear, they would be gathered by the reapers, the angels in the last day, into the storehouses of glory. Finally, in this section, perception and parable, Jesus tells the people, Don't pay any attention to them. Don't follow them. The blind are leading the blind. Let them alone, he says, verse 14. There are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into the pit. And we see a reference there to Isaiah 6, 9 through 10, where blindness is prophesied over most of the people at the time of the prophet's oracle. Also, we see reference to blindness again in Isaiah 29, 9 through 10, where The prophet delivers his word, but again, because of the blindness of the people, those who would rather speak than listen to God are judged. So in this section, the perception and parable that Jesus has already demonstrated has been illustrated. The fact that hearing and understanding are a gracious gift. The fact that every plant that grows up as a weed in stark opposition and obstinance to Christ will be judged and burned and condemned in hell eternal. And if you were to follow them, it is the equivalent of the blind leading the blind. In this section, we see clearly more evidence playing out before the people that God will have the last authoritative word. Note, if you will, if you're any student of church history, That historical proof of Christ tending his own garden of the church is evident in the shelf life of heresy. 
There are heresies and winds of doctrine that blow today, and they are ubiquitous. There are tons of ridiculous statements. There's all kinds of false teaching here today. But most of it is, quote, new and improved. It's the winds and the uh, waves of doctrine that blow across the land that distract and twist and add to and subtract from the Word of God. And those conditions have plagued the church since the beginning. But one thing that is very rare indeed is any super long-standing heresy. Liberal churches die. Heretics are forgotten and dismissed. Good books tend to be discovered, reprinted, and passed on. Fluff, junk, stupid, self-oriented, self-help, self-worshipping books that proliferate the bookshelves of your Christian bookstore will likely not go into a second or third printing, but thankfully so will drift into the obscurity as the, into obscurity as the providence of God judges them as so many distractions and offense to the nostrils of a people of Christ because they deliver to a people things that they wish to hear instead of a clear call for repentance because of the sin that is so evident in the culture around us. Nevertheless, discernment is immediately necessary for us because, yes, like these books represent present winds of doctrine, do blow. But may we be so steeped in the words of Christ. May we demonstrate affections for the Word of God, something like we saw pictured in that video today, so that we are prepared to discern them when we hear them. And so that as we make our judgment calls discerning whether or not this word, that preacher, this movement, that book is of Christ or not, that we would, we would be on the side of God's providence in history and eventually their demise will cons- confirm the testimony of the Holy Spirit in us, giving us wisdom not to follow the blind straight into the pit of hell. But let the words of Christ and let the deceptive power of the Pharisees heighten our spiritual antennas in this regard because we as finite fallen human beings are easily deceived. And what is discernment and deception? What is discernment, the key for it, the reference point, and what is good deception protection for us? Well, nothing less than the Word of God. Understood, studied, saturated, and made a part of our daily routine. We love it so much we begin to nurture hatred for its counterfeit. Finally, number four today, Jesus speaks to the properties and nature of defilement. We're weighing the contextual significance of Christ versus Pharisees. Jesus references defilement four times in this section, Matthew 15, 10 through 20. He says, first and 11, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, the first mention, but what comes out of the mouth that This defiles a person. We hear it again. Later, he returns to this language by saying in verse 18, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the mouth comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what, again, defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile, there's the fifth mention in actuality, anyone. So in this section, as Jesus time and again refers to defilement, what is he explaining? As against the preconceived idea of the culture of the day, he's identifying the properties and nature of sin. What is true corruption? 
He identifies for us that sin is an internal, not an external problem. Our problem is not some foreign contaminant alone, but is indeed and most substantially identified as our inward nature, our very being, the heart of fallen man in Adam. Therefore, as against the Pharisees' teaching, directly opposed to any self-help notion, therefore there is no hope of self-cleansing. Because our problem is internal, not external, there is no self-help plan that can be engineered, promoted, or adhered to that will cleanse us from this defilement. There is only the blood of Christ. There is only the imputed righteousness of Jesus that can change the nature of a fallen man from dead in sin to born again and new life in Christ. To reprobate and fallen at enmity and at enemy with the Lord and His glory, where every thought at its root motive proves to be at odds with Him to new life, new birth, and the glorious initiation of sanctification in the life of a believer. Now these ideas are confirmed by woes again later as Jesus speaks against the Pharisees in relation to defilement. Two of the woes at least speak to this concept in Matthew 23. Again, woe to you, verse 25, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Why? Because of their misunderstanding of the nature of defilement. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, you blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, then the outside also may be clean. Again, woe number six, verse woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but again, hear the issue that was lost on them is the nature of defilement, and he says as much in this picture, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Again, defilement. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and, again, lawlessness. In this section, the properties and nature of defilement, Jesus declares and confirms later in the woes. This fundamental beef with the Pharisees that Jesus had was that they thought sin had to do with the environment around them and not the corrupt heart of man. And so today we are so guilty of that same area, of that same uh, thinking. Also, please note that when Jesus says all lawbreakers are included in this category, when he speaks to defilement, there's a holiness presupposed there. One of my favorite lecturers was interviewed and they were speaking about political corruption. And he wisely and insightfully and biblically interjected with this thought. He said, corruption presumes a pristine prior state. Corruption presumes a pristine prior state. You see, people are more than willing to say, this is corrupt, that is wrong, this is defiled, that's bad, this is problematic. But all of those judgment calls, moral, ethical, cultural, across the board, they all presume a pristine prior state. Nothing can be defiled unless it has fallen from the standard of the pure. Nothing can be corrupt unless it has fallen from the standard of the righteous. So keep that in mind. 
And then ask yourself this question, what is the standard of the pure? At the end of Isaiah 29, the author says, sanctify the Lord as holy. What is that? It's returning to the standard of the pure. It's returning to the standard of integrity. The law of God as dictated in Scripture, which is a revelation of His attributes and nature, is the standard of the pure. And in Christ's law-keeping power imputed to us in salvation, we meet that standard. But only, only in Christ. Holiness is presupposed in this indictment against the Pharisees. The shorter catechism, you might remember what is sin. Sin is any want of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. And here we find the law fitting its perfect and prescribed purpose. It shows us that we have fallen short of the glory of God. It communicates to us the standard presupposed to which we must return. That pristine prior state of holiness is possible by the Spirit's work of recreation in the heart of a believer. Closing in an application today. This is not the popular view of problem and salvation that we find around us today. So I'd like this message to equip us in at least two ways. First of all, repentance, as we mentioned at the beginning, of any way we judge ourselves falling short of this understanding and standard. But secondly, for evangelism. Keep these thoughts in your mind as it is our duty, your duty, to bring the standard of God's truth communicated through your life and your profession to unbelievers around you. Oftentimes I can't resist doing a parallel word study between a modern dictionary and Webster's 1828. I looked up just for kicks the word defilement. Modern definition, correct in the first part, interesting in the example they cited is as follows. Definition of defilement in most Americans' minds as measured by a typical dictionary. To make unclean or impure as to corrupt purity or perfection of. And then it gives an example. This is the only example cited in this online dictionary I consulted. What does it mean to be defiled? Well, for instance, when a countryside is defiled by billboards. When a countryside is defiled by billboards. I can see the laughter evidencing the incredulity that you are feeling that I felt when I read that ridiculous phrase. Now, let me recall your... Let me recall our attention as a people to a former, more Christian era and a previous dictionary. And this is just a segment, a snippet from a larger definition. What does it mean to defile? It means to tarnish, according to Webster's 1828, to violate the purity of character by lewdness. And there's a bunch of other insightful explanation, and then it gives examples. For example, Sechem defiled Dinah in Genesis 34. That was a violation of marriage covenant. It was sexual impurity that was evidenced there, right in the Word of God. Secondly, to render impure with sin, right in the dictionary. Example, defile not yourselves with idols of Egypt, cited from Ezekiel chapter 20. And finally, and these are just a few, he that defiles the sanctuary of the Lord is an example of what it means to defile given in this dictionary and Numbers 19. And so you see the difference. Today, these days, you are called to evangelize and reach a world that thinks our biggest problems are billboards on pristine countrysides. And they lament the environmental destruction by any number of measures around them in material things. Have you ever walked into a public school with a critical mind, uh, kind of around Earth Day? 
Earth Day is like a celebrated religious holiday for the new, uh, I call them neo-pagans or pantheists. And if you go into a public school around Earth Day, invariably you'll find plastered across the elementary school halls all their projects. And I remember seeing this firsthand in our community. The earth weeping, tears of used car oil. Um, You know, just this, oh, big circle and hash mark through it, like down with major corporate companies. Oh, pollution is wrecking the environment. You know, to some degree, we have a calling to steward this glorious earth that God has given us. But if we are going to be so blind to assume that our biggest problems are billboards on the countryside and not sin in the heart of man, we have a real problem that only the word of Christ can correct. We are witnessing to a culture who sees bigger problems with an oil spill than they do the sexual anarchy that is proposed and encouraged and normalized within those same halls of indoctrination, instruction, and in learning. And these stories are all over the place. An elementary school, for instance, in California had a special mandatory event that brought in those of lewd character and totally reprehensible and perverse lifestyles to teach the kids about what's normal and right and to teach them not to discriminate against what's represented by their co-opting of the rainbow flag and adding an ever-lengthening list of initials behind it to represent their sexual anarchy, which is nothing more than a denial of the Lord of glory and His standards of righteousness and truth and the pristine prior state of His holiness. Yet this is an example of the world today that we are called to speak the Lord's word to. Recently, you've seen the new services come alive with supposedly justified looting and race riots in a town where supposedly, and it might well be the case, an unjust act has occurred by law enforcement, but perhaps the most insightful quote, a little tongue-in-cheek in that regard, to illustrate where we are as a culture, was from a fellow named Steve Dace who said, nothing says social justice like looting Walgreens. Do our problems today, whatever we consider them, like discrimination and environmental issues and so on, do they warrant breaking God's law? Is our answer doing whatever we see fit as a law unto ourselves by vandalism, theft, and violence, and ultimately disagreeing with God's holy word? Never and never let it be said. And let it, let it never be entertained by us as believers. Christ says, out of the heart come all these things. He says, not as a result of our environment around us, no excuse other than the fallen heart of man. Verse 19, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Again, I ask in closing, how do these words fall on our ears? Do they fall on our ears as the humble and the meek, the teachable disciple who hears and understands? Or do they fall on us like the grimacing Pharisee who does not want to have his preconceived ideas rattled and be forced into a corner to admit he is a sinner, fallen, 
And so I pray in this regard, in repentance of our own sin, and also in greater clarity to preach the gospel to culture, we might be encouraged by the words of Christ demonstrated in this interaction with the Pharisees that Christ is ruling and reigning. His word is and always will be the only standard of righteousness. And may we love it and understand it to such a high degree that it is accurately represented in our own confession and in our own lives lived. Let's close in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we pray that each one of us, before we judge anyone else, or even the cultural examples that we've lifted up today as areas that need to hear the word of God, that we would search our hearts. Do we love your word? Is Christ precious to us? Do we weep ever? Are we moved with emotion and gratitude and joy for the gracious gift, Lord, of assembling with your people, of worshiping together every Lord's Day, of opening your scriptures morning and evening? Surely we are guilty, Lord, often of falling short of the appropriate worship you deserve for such gracious acts on our behalf. Let us repent of them. Let us grow in our faithfulness and our worship of you and our our understanding of what you have said and therefore in our ability to articulate, to proclaim and to evidence by our own testimony and sanctification the glories of the gospel to whomever you call us to reach. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen.